0: Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns and welcome back to the second part of the Diary of a Conference Campaigner written by me in October 1995. In episode one, you'll have heard how the news of my coming out was received by Conservative Party associates in the small Cheshire village where I lived, and how I dealt with the media as I set out to speak at a fringe meeting outside the Labour Party conference in Brighton that year. Week two begins with preparations for the Conservative conference in Blackpool. Monday, October 9th, 1995. Some people will be setting off today for the Conservative conference in Blackpool but I'm not going there until tomorrow. There's too much to do at home and besides, I'll not be missing much if I don't arrive till Tuesday afternoon. In the meantime, I sort out the invitations for the next constituency women's supper club event which I chair and I pop my head into the local party office ostensibly to deliver the letters for distribution. Really, of course, I'm testing the water. I gave my MP permission to brief his agent and the staff there and I haven't seen them since the mail-wang round but all is sweetness and smiles. I sigh inwardly and head on to a nearby photographer's who persuaded me to have a sitting a fortnight previously. I'm astonished to find that I like the portraits they've taken too and spend far more than I can afford on a big framed portrait as a Christmas present to my parents. The ego boost couldn't be better timed. All this exposure of my past is making me very self-conscious. A few weeks ago, I was just a local businesswoman. Now I feel something else entirely. I vow to have an early night. Tuesday, October 10th, 1995. A busy morning's preparation, including another trip to the hairdressers, and I'm finally on the road to Blackpool at lunchtime with only two false starts when I suddenly decide to take extra shoes and other bits I'd previously decided I could do without. I reflect that one benefit of planes and trains is that I'm then forced to restrict myself to a suitcase. In the car, the case gets supplemented by countless carrier bags and things on hangers that one only folds under duress. Paranoia is in full flow. I have backups for everything. Arriving in Blackpool, I find the hotel in five minutes and spend another twenty looking for somewhere to park the car and unload. I wish as I struggle with hangerfuls and carrier bags that I hadn't optimistically convinced myself that I'd be able to park outside. The room is impossibly small and has no ensuite facilities, so I inquire after a larger one. It'll be another £20 a night, they say, but one look at the larger room and there's no contest. I cough up, unpack and change from leggings into conference attire before sorting out a healthy stock of leaflets and flyers to take into the winter gardens. I park the car a mile away outside the hotel where tomorrow's fringe meeting will be. I've concealed extra stocks of everything in the boot. Then I grab a taxi for the conference. This is it. There is now one job which I cannot delegate to anybody else. As the Conservative conference itself is only open to representatives with security passes, it falls to me to distribute leaflets and flyers inside. There will be volunteers outside tomorrow, assailing people as they queue to get in, but if we want to maximise the number of people we get to come along, then we'll have to get to some today, before they've decided on their fringe programme. I limber up with a preliminary walk-around, look in on the conference itself, have a cup of tea, and then do my duty conservatives are very nice people very polite and when a youngish woman walks up to them with a pile of leaflets there's a very well rehearsed protocol they'll look up and smile forgive you for disturbing them graciously accept the proffered leaflet and either promise to read it or tell a white lie and say they'll come to whatever event you're advertising (laughs) simple usually for my first targets I seek out a couple having tea on one of the main thoroughfares as I approach, they both look up and smile, and then the husband's eyes roll downwards towards my bosom whilst I address his wife. Would you like to come to a fringe meeting which I'm chairing tomorrow at 1 p.m., I ask in my friendliest tone. She beams back. What's it about? I hand over a flyer and start to explain as she reads the title The Medical and Legal View of Transsexuality in the 1990s. A look of profound unease replaces the smile and she gingerly hands the sheet back to me holding it as one would hold a used handkerchief belonging to someone with the plague Oh no, she intones distastefully We're not interested in that sort of thing I take a breath and explain that that sort of thing is about the ignorant and bigoted treatment handed out to nice people like me a woman who might be the secretary of her committee For a brief moment I can see that I've profoundly shaken her beliefs. Her husband too has stopped fantasising about my breasts and is craning to look at the flyer which she's handing back. The effect is momentary however. I offer leaflets explaining the realities about gender identity but she doesn't want to know. The prejudice overrules the senses. I smile, I'm polite and I move on to repeat the same experience over and over again as the afternoon rolls on. One man tells me quite proudly how I won't change his views and how he's travelled widely and knows all about that sort of practice, embarrassing his slightly less rabid wife, who can actually grasp the irony. I hear again that word flaunting. Here we are, I suppose, flaunting our political views. Another woman proclaims loudly that she doesn't approve of gays. Well, gender dysphoria has nothing to do with sexual orientation, I point out patiently. Or transvestism. Transsexuals aren't the same as cross I explain, and she brushes off each correction to her stereotypes with an ease that leaves me wondering whether there's any logic at all beneath her freshly permed mane. I'm starting to feel ashamed. Not for being a trans woman, of course, but for supporting the party that attracts these sorts of people. You offer them a chance to learn something and to consider whether their ignorance makes them party to a terrible miscarriage, and they decline. They're happy with their prejudices, Don't, for heaven's sake, trouble them with facts. I start to think about the answer I gave the journalist last week when I'd firmly stated my party loyalty. (laughs) I decide I need another cup of tea. As I sit and wonder about tomorrow's fringe meeting, I wonder how I'll fare. Is nobody going to come? Will it be a press humiliation? Or will a band of bigots turn up and tell us how depraved we all are? For the first time in my life I understand what blind prejudice is and how it feels. Till now my life has been charmed. What a revelation. The young man at the next table is looking at me, appreciatively, thank God, and I start up a conversation with him and his colleague. It turns out they're from a market research company and I have the presence of mind to push aside all the feelings of despair from the leaflet exercise to make serious inquiries about possible opinion surveying we could do and to look for sources of PR guidance. I explain the campaign and my involvement, and they're riveted. I've found intelligent life at last. What a relief! We swap business cards, and I go off to seek more enriching encounters on the Amnesty International stand, after promising to get in touch next week. Later, back with another cup of tea, I make the second useful contact of the day. I find myself sitting next to the organisers of TORCH, the Tory campaign for homosexual equality, and, ironically, one of the largest interest groups in the party. Although many trans people like myself have a heterosexual lifestyle and some are wary of existing prejudices being reinforced by association, I'm keen to make sure that we learn to work together since we share the same discrimination in many ways. I'm also keen to challenge the prejudices that some gay and lesbian people have about us too, realising that the trans person's desire to melt into normal society can be misinterpreted by people who might mistakenly think we're closet gays looking for an easy cop-out from discrimination. To some, transsexual men are seen as misguided dykes and transsexual women as imposters. There's a defined pecking order when it comes to bigotry, I'm sad to say. The torch people are interested in what I've got to say and promised me a hearing at their own fringe meeting that evening if I'd like to come along. I promise I will, and I go back to my hotel for a rest, feeling at last as though I might actually be achieving something valuable. It strikes me that I haven't a clue what went on in the afternoon's debates. The evening's meeting does turn out to be a good move. First I find myself in conversation with a local radio reporter sitting next to me, after remarking that his tape machine is the same sort that I used to go out with when I'd done work for the BBC 20 years ago. We talk about lugging the confounded things around. They're not light by any means. And then he asks why I'm there. Am I one of the very rare lesbians in the organisation? I explain, and he says I'm the first transsexual person he's ever met. I point out the obvious. How does he know that? And we agree that perhaps we'll do a piece later. I score a hit with the meeting, too, by putting a zealot from the Conservative Christian Fellowship in his place. I'm starting to enjoy myself as a fearless campaigner and when I'm invited at the end to give a plug for my own meeting I find I'm talking confidently and with a message that's well received. I sit down to applause and people come over to say nice things afterwards. My radio reporter has disappeared though so I slip away myself and go off boldly in search of a pizza. I'm going to have an early night. I make a quick call to ensure both my speakers are okay for tomorrow and then I turn out the light. Wednesday October 11th 1995 This is it. I've set the alarm for 7am and I open my eyes to instant wakefulness. I take my time getting up though and do everything in my power to think and to be serene. There's a nasty moment when I don't seem to be able to turn the shower off but eventually I'm ready and set off to walk to the conference centre. It's sunny and there's not much breeze and I'm in a good mood when I arrive at the Winter Gardens to review my troops by the entrance. They're all there, and well on the way to giving out the balance of the 500 flyers which we've had printed. Interestingly, few people have made a fuss. But then I'm polite to lobbyists outside the centre too, and so I go in to do some more leafleting myself, and maybe see a debate as well. By now I'm starting to see a lot of familiar faces. I've made friends on the Terence Higgins Trust stand from last night's fringe meeting, the first year they've been allowed inside the conference venue, I'm told. I finally bump into some people from my own constituency too. They ask, what fringe meetings are you going to? And I take a deep breath. Well, actually, I'm chairing one this lunchtime. Instinctively, I keep wanting to be discreet, to be an ordinary representative. But what does it look like now if I fudge the issue with some after confronting the others? Grimly, I press on. I spot Michael Howard and go over to talk to him. The Home Secretary knows me by name now. Last year he even left his entourage when out walking and came across to ask how I was. He always beams in such a friendly way. It's a shame he can't follow through, though, by acceding to a few simple requests, though, as well. I cheekily invite him to the fringe meeting, and he parries as expected. Later I also come across a junior minister, whose job it once was to reply to correspondence from and about transsexual people. It's a good opener, as I've got a whole sheaf of obfuscatory answers from him in my own files. He's enchanted, it seems, tells me how lovely I am, and calls over a very nice woman from ragriculture. She wants to know how come my voice is pitched naturally, and I roll my eyes discreetly as another stereotype gets aired. Talking to them, however, it becomes apparent that my diligent correspondent has never actually read the carefully worded letters I'd sent. I have the feeling that the man who'd assured me for so long that the Home Office is continually reviewing the status of transsexuals had never actually read up on his subject. At that moment, somebody from the BBC rushes up to snatch him away. It's just as well. I might have said something unladylike if he'd stayed. I keep looking at my watch and decide eventually that it's time to leave and head for the fringe venue. I flirt sweetly with the taxi driver on the way and curse that I've chosen a hotel that's so far away from the centre of things. I retrieve supplies from the boot of my car and then order tea in the lobby and try to appear nonchalant while waiting for the room to be readied. Around me, the police are doing a detailed security check. Turns out we're sharing the hotel with the Foreign Secretary and a horde of Arab businessmen. Once inside the room, I start sorting out a leaflet display and a plainclothes police officer comes in to check things out. What's the meeting about, he inquires. I explain, and he wonders why I'm campaigning for people like that. I tell him, and he's off balance for a moment, but sophisticated enough to then apologise and listen more intently. He takes some leaflets with him, and I ponder the conversation that will be happening in the canteen later that afternoon. Sometimes the extent of the ignorance is just breathtaking. Am I taking on the impossible? Should I just move somewhere else? Turkey, perhaps? It's curious to think that the country epitomised for me by Midnight Express actually knows how to treat people like me sympathetically, like most of the rest of the civilised world too. And here I am, working for the party that steadfastly refused to even discuss the issue for its 16 years in office. The people who don't even read their post. The speakers and leaflet volunteers arrive and we all sit, watching the door expectantly. At ten minutes past the appointed hour, the thing is beginning to have the air of a farce. Three people have turned up. There's an association chairwoman whose own daughter was transsexual and whom I'd met by sheer chance the previous day whilst leafleting. Then there's a representative from Torch and finally Roger Sims MP a junior health minister who would come along out of his own interest having met a transsexual constituent in one of his surgeries. We've also got a young reporter from a local newspaper, although I can see that he's not going to stay the distance if the audience is this pitiful, so I suggest he sits down for five minutes with one of the speakers, my colleague Dr Stephen Whittle, himself a transsexual man. Thus briefed and astonished to learn Stephen's background, the reporter goes on his way. Maybe another stereotype can be worn down a little. There are blokes too. I decide in the end to go on regardless, although I haven't got the heart to say much myself. I introduce the first speaker after a brief and pointlessly bitter piece about bigotry in the party. I regret what I've said almost immediately and think instead about how soon it will all be over. Five minutes into the discussion and the audience is swelled by the arrival of a man who bustles in and parks himself at the back. The BBC's Vincent Hanna has come along as he'd promised. Oh well, maybe it's not that much of a disaster after all. We lumber on, and in fact the meeting ends up quite constructively all round. We attack the coffee and break up, and I go back to the winter gardens. I'm determined to see a debate. As I enter the place, I'm assailed by Matthew Parris of the Times. He wants to do a piece. He thinks what I'm doing is very brave, and says he'll give Roger Sims a verbal pat on the back for coming along. I wander on in a daze. Before I get to the conference hall, I'm grabbed from behind by two strong hands. I freeze, and then I realise it's a man whom I'd met at my very first conference two years ago. He sent me flowers that year when I got home and insisted we have dinner. He was very sweet back then, and I'd felt guilty when, after a few weeks, I had to be firm and say that I didn't fancy him. Since then, he'd remained friendly, And now he wants to know about the fringe meeting I've been chairing. News travels fast. He tells me about a transsexual friend of his and then asks me how I got involved with the subject. What on earth do you say at a moment like that, bearing in mind that he might read about me tomorrow for all I know? Another deep breath, and I tell him, and he takes a step back. I feel awful. I'm not trying to hurt people or rub their noses in it, quite the opposite. It's the thing I was most afraid of in coming out. He recovers admirably, though, and the smile is still there. What a pity I don't fancy you, I think. I go to the debate, but I'm not concentrating. I'm not even sure which debate it is. Wednesday evening is mapped out in advance, thank goodness. No time to brood. There will be a reception for all the Northwest constituency representatives at the Imperial Hotel first and then our own constituency people, past and present, are getting together for dinner in the hotel where the majority of them are staying. The reception is crowded as usual and is a chance to renew acquaintances made in the past though on this occasion I've decided to be vague about what I've been doing in the conference. I'm quite touched by how many people go out of their way to make sure I'm in no doubt about being invited to the dinner. This is the unseen side of Conservatives, the side we hide to our detriment as a party. Mine is a new constituency, torn away from another seat by boundary changes, and so I'm even more touched when the chairman of the old association comes up and presses a sealed envelope into my hand. It's from his family. I go and open it in a corner and read the good wishes. Such a simple act, such an important gesture. I'm deeply affected. A sudden surge of the crowd interrupts my reverie. The Prime Minister has arrived in the room unexpectedly. He goes round, shaking hands, and I press forward for a closer look. Our eyes meet for a second, and I manage to false smile, but I'm too far away for him to offer his hand. I'm relieved in a way, though. The heart isn't there right now for encouraging John Major. I've given plenty already, in terms of both money and time. What I'd like back is so little to ask. Dinner is enchanting, however. Our MP's agent has worked out a good seating plan, and I'm sandwiched between the only two young men present. I decide to be vague about my conference experiences again in the interests of politesse and my own battered feelings, but it's not to be, as one of them very sweetly makes it clear that he wants to talk about the problems faced by my campaign. This allows the other to join in too and we talk earnestly about tactics till I remind them that there's a lot more to me than just that. The rest of the night we're normal except that I feel rather too self-conscious to flirt quite as I'd like. Can people really imagine themselves into my shoes? I doubt it. By the time the coffee comes round I'm already having difficulty keeping my eyes open and after a decent interval I make my goodbyes. The old constituency chairman makes a point of kissing me on the cheek as I leave and I tell him how much that means. It's been a long day and I get back to my hotel room just before midnight. I make a conscious effort to switch on a smile before confronting myself in the mirror to remove my makeup, but it's to no avail. With the pressure off at last, I sit down on the edge of the bed and I just cry my eyes out. No one reason. Simple emotional overload. Thursday, october twelfth, nineteen ninety five. I award myself a lie in but still managed to arrive at the Winter Gardens just after nine AM. Today I just want to enjoy the conference. I spot a lady in an electric wheelchair whom I recognise from previous years. I always made the point of chatting to her and promised to attend the disability fringe meeting which is starting in ten minutes time. Just time for tea and biscuits. The meeting is interesting, and I'm waylaid by a man who wants to know if I'd like to help his organisation in the North West, although I'm honest and say that I've got a campaign of my own to run, too. Maybe when I've done what I can for Press for Change. Isn't it strange how the world separates out into those who care and get involved, and those who don't want to see? I think again about the words of one lady which keep resurfacing. I don't mind about transsexuals as long as they don't flaunt themselves under my nose, she said. I substitute disabled people for my own label and connect. It had never really occurred to me where the roots of such sentiments lie till now, and now it's so clear. They don't want to know the facts about life because, if they did, then they'd have nowhere to hide the fact that they care only for themselves. At lunchtime, I meet up with my branch chairman and the chair of the women's committee. We swap thoughts about the conference and disagree on the rights and wrongs of Margaret Thatcher having taken a place on the rostrum next to John Major. We always do disagree about Margaret Thatcher and I'm relieved. It's business as usual. The afternoon feels like familiar territory too. It's the law and order debate and it's the one I don't want to miss. On this occasion it feels different though, rather unsettling. A very brave man takes the rostrum and tries to oppose the idea of compulsory identity cards. He's booed and hissed and for the second time this week I feel ashamed to be among the crowd on the floor. These aren't conservatives in my book. They're narrow-minded wolves baying for blood. Cat calls don't facilitate serious debate but once again I'm looking around at people who don't want to be bothered by complicated ideas. They want simple answers. Simple solutions for simple people. The conference chairman admonishes the audience for their undemocratic behaviour. He says it's unconservative. But I don't hear many listening to his call. After Michael Howard, I go off in search of tea. I'm killing time because I've arranged an opportunity for electronic correspondence on the UK Politics Forum to meet up at my hotel. There's an hour to spare and I sit down next to a woman in a striking turquoise outfit. I decide that I'll compliment her on her taste and open with the standard conference-goer's line. Are you enjoying the conference? We talk, and then we realise that we're both electronic correspondents on the same forum. I love these sorts of coincidences. 10,000 people milling around, and you sit down next to somebody whom you don't realise you know. On the way back to my hotel... I also bump into somebody from Westminster's Health magazine, an incredibly lively woman who invites me to join her with friends over dinner. Well, the evening's sealed, I can start to wind down. I eat well, laugh, perform my poetry and talk politics into the night, getting back to my hotel room at 3.45am to fall into bed and grab three and a half hours sleep. Wednesday is now just a dim memory. Friday, October thirteenth, nineteen ninety-five. If you'd asked me on Thursday night, then I would have said that I'd no intentions of attending John Major's speech. In previous years, when he spoke in the afternoon, it was necessary to reserve a seat in the conference hall by ten a.m. at the latest and stay there, going as a party so that each could take turns to go to the toilet or fetch refreshments. I assumed that it could only be worse now that he was to speak before lunch and tried to back up the reasoning by thinking about the logistics of checking out of the hotel early enough and fetching the car from its parking spot a mile up the promenade. Waking at 7am, however, I shame myself. What if everybody else reasoned the same way? Would the Prime Minister get up to find we've all gone home? So I get dressed and pack and negotiate for the hotel to look after my things securely. Then I stand in the conference hall for two and a half hours, because there are, of course, no seats left. By 1pm, it's all over for another year and I'm on the road. What a fortnight. Getting back, I unpack the case, put various bits in the washing machine and take the smart stuff round to the dry cleaners. The mundane things of life crowd in so quickly, like the advancing tide swirling around the afternoon sandcastle and levelling it. Before going back to an empty house, I pop in at a friend's in the village and we talk about the conference and the trips she's made whilst I've been away over biscuits and tea I'm relieved that I've not lost simple things like this somehow the conversation turns to the horror stories which all women travellers can relate about the men you sometimes encounter in hotels we're in mid-anecdote and I'm nodding in understanding when she stops suddenly and apologises she says she's hopes I'm not offended by her running down men in that way why on earth should I be I answer regretting my complacency I stare across the chasm that divides our understanding and patiently I explain for what seems the umpteenth time that I'm a woman I've always been a woman between my ears and I have the same experiences as other women the same encounters with men as her why should she think otherwise does she realise now why transsexual people want to and need to bury their histories and why the government's attitude is so callous Can she begin to understand what I've given up so that a generation of Jills can be cured of their distress and then never have to face this? I'm trying not to hurt her feelings, but mine are shot through. I'm guilty for the discomfort I bring when I start to cry, but I can't hold it back. As I set off for home, I'm desolate, tired and beaten, grieving a life that I've knowingly sacrificed. I can't blame others for their indifference to this campaign, but often I wish that there were more who'd understood just what it costs those of us who venture out of the trenches. You've been listening to Just Plain Sense, a podcast on themes of equality and diversity, and this has been part two of the Diary of a Conference Campaigner, written by myself, Christine Burns, in October 1995. If you'd like to hear more programmes, then the place to go is the website podcast.plain-sense.co.uk Join us again soon for more programmes about diversity. And remember, Just Plain Sense is the Plain Sense limited production. If we love-